to the Nucleus Radio Show. I'm Nora Alwata and I'm ecstatic you could join us today for our first ever show. Throughout this series, we'll be talking you through why science is important in our everyday lives with guests from the public having conversations about their experiences, work and research. Today on the show, we have the synthetic biologist, Dr. John Love, talking about his work on biofuel and artist Honor Degare revealing the inspiration for her recent artwork made up of plastic waste found by the sea. From fashion to fuel, synthetic biology is a promising tool for addressing the global, environmental and geopolitical challenges we face in the 21st century. The ultimate goal is for biological systems to be understood to the same extent of, let's say, an engine or some computer code. These systems are extremely modular and therefore quite straightforward to manipulate. But biological systems are noisy, extremely complex, and very labour-intensive to map out. Developing a standardised set of molecular building blocks to manipulate biological systems is what synthetic biology is all about. So today on the show, we're asking the question, how can synthetic biology be used in the context of energy? We're noticing a shift away from the reliance on fossil fuels in order to transition to a low-carbon economy. While solar and wind do a good job of addressing our domestic energy needs, they do not address our reliance on combustion engines, which are particularly necessary for the functioning of airplanes, ships and automobiles that we so heavily rely on. This gives us two options, one being to expensively replace every vehicle's engine and system, or two, to produce a less environmentally damaging fuel that is compatible with our current infrastructure. Joining us today is Professor of Synthetic Biology at the University of Exeter and Director of the Exeter Microbial Biofuels Group, Dr. John Love, who is fueling the future with synthetic biology. Some of his most recent work is on investigating bioalkane production in algae and bacteria that we can use to directly replace petroleum-based products. Thank you for being on the show today, John. I'd like to ask you what got you interested in synthetic biology? Well, what got me interested in synthetic biology was just very, very practical. We had studied um, biofuels for about a decade and realised that the natural systems that we were faced with were not adequate for producing the fuels that we wanted to produce, which are exact mimics of petroleum-based fuels. Synthetic biology was really the only way that we could address that question. And um, looking when we were looking more into it, more into how we could do this, we realised that actually the um, getting into the field is not hard, providing you accept certain you know, prerequisites so that, that you need to know certain things and um, you're able to, to just go with it. it it's, not, it, it's a field that's open to everyone. Um, so what, what kind of challenges do you face getting biofuel into the market? Oh, well, luckily I'm a researcher, so I don't face any getting it into the market. Our research is so early doors um, in terms of 
materiality, so that is taking it to a market. Um, in our field, in the field of biofuels, it takes about 20 years to go from bench to, to pump. But, um, and, and we would not, we are not actually involved, although we're involved in taking it to a certain level of what's known as technology readiness, we're not involved in the marketing or the blending of that would be the oil companies or the fuel companies that would do that. So, but in terms of regulation, the biggest thing is the compliance with um, the fuel specifications. So all fuels need to work equally well under all conditions in all engines and also uh, with safety. So we need to ensure that our fuels are as inert as possible, will cause minimum environmental damage, uh, are as carbon neutral as possible. There, there's all sorts of things that we need to build into that to, to form a, a sustainable biofuel source. Yeah. Um, so hypothetically, what kind of legislation would you change to improve how science is done in your field? Well, uh, as a researcher in a university, um, we find that uh, we're not subject to the same level of legislation that, say, somebody in industry would be. So, for example, a researcher in industry sometimes is not allowed to investigate certain things because these ideas or these processes have actually been patented by another company. So they can't even research that um, in order to avoid what they call IP contamination. But as a researcher in a, in a, in a university, you can. So um, what we're able to do is to um, investigate new ideas but also verify old ones or other people's ideas and actually try to come up with new solutions. And um, in terms of legislation, I think that patenting is, is useful, obviously, because it guarantees uh, a return on investment for the person who's put in a lot of research and potentially a lot of money into things, but um, also in practice sometimes patents can be infringed and the, the inventor has little recourse. So it's, uh, it, it's a difficult one, that one really. Um, whether How we could change that legislation, uh, I, I think that potentially the field could be levelled you know, people in small companies could have equal access to um, to patenting the, as people in larger companies. But again, this is all, I mean, it, it requires lawyers, it requires a, a massive investment just to even generate a patent. Mm -hmm. So I don't, I mean, I think it would be easier if, if to be honest, things were more open source. And I think that the nice thing about synthetic biology is that there's a sort of open source paradigm that goes along with it in as much that people must agree um, certain rules of um, modularity, certain ways of putting the parts together. And so that forces people to be slightly more open than they would otherwise be, perhaps. So you're talking about synthetic biology and how it's quite modular. Yeah. Um, and obviously biology generally is fairly messy. Um, so how do you kind of cope with that messiness and that noisiness <laughs> in synthetic biology? Yeah, well, I mean, that, that's the million dollar question, really. The, um, there are different ways of doing it. You can try to isolate your synthetic system from the messiness itself. 
um, people are, are investigating what they call uh, in-cell encapsulation, where they would use um, little phage-like particles or virus-like particles within cells to insulate their synthetic system. You can use, um, you could actually go what they call cell-free, where basically you are, you've got a genetic network that does not need the cell to operate, but just cellular components to operate. Um, that would, you would tend to find that in the biosensors arena, for instance, or things like that. But unfortunately, sometimes you just got to cope with that messiness. Accept that it's there. Accept, maybe quantify how much of it is messy, and then build that into your calculations um, for for production or something like that. Knowing that for going to grow, um, fifty percent of your bacteria will never express what you want them to express. Okay, is that? you just need to maybe take that hit. There, there might not be a way around it. Another way potentially is to, to do what Craig Venter, for instance, is wanting to do, which is go for a minimal genome so you are able to synthesize uh, the absolute minimal genome that is required to generate a functioning cell, and you use that as your basic chassis, and then you add things to it. So it's a bit like getting a kit car where you can have multiple options and you would just build it up like that. So there, there, there are ways around it, but it will definitely take time. Yeah. Um, so where do you see the future of synthetic biology going? Okay, so I think and I hope that the future of synthetic biology will be like what molecular biology was. So it will become pervasive and endemic in industry, in science, in research. It will just become another tool to improve the processes that we have to make chemicals faster, cheaper, safer, to make processes that work better, um, maybe in a more decentralized way, so as that there's maybe less... Uh, the, hopefully it will become a force for um, generating more equality in the world and, and making things less hierarchical, less dependent on being rich, that sort of thing. I think that, that would be really great. If we could do that, that, that I think would be wonderful. Um, in terms of equality, food security is a really big issue at yeah. the moment with our rising population. And a lot of people in the field have um, thought about this food versus idea with arable land. Mm -hmm. um, what, what are your thoughts on that and also on our ecosystems that would possibly be destroyed in order to grow crops yeah. for biofuel use? Yeah, that, that, <laughs> that definitely <laughs> is a problem. Um, we need food. Um, hunger, fortunately, in the West is not something that most people experience, um, although, you know, people have. Um, hunger in less developed regions is something that just stops people from achieving their potential. So I would say if you've got the choice, go for food over fuel any time. But prosperity relies on fuel. Um, and, and actually, you've got to see that the biofuels that we are trying to make now are in response to a crisis that we currently have. In the future, we don't know what's going to happen. So if possible, I would say just to try as, much, as many things as we can to get a mixed economy of 
certain fuels for certain um, applications, like for instance, you could keep liquid fuels, for instance, for air travel, but for urban cars, you might want to go entirely electric. How you generate that electricity is another problem. Renewables are coming down though, solar cells are becoming more efficient. So I think that we can answer a lot of problems, but um, obviously adoption is, is a big worry. You know, people have to want to adopt these things, so the cost has to be right. Um, when it comes to the problem of arable land or the destruction of um, endemic ecosystems in order to generate food, that is a problem. Um, you think of uh, the oil palm plant, for instance, in Southeast Asia and Borneo, the, where the rainforest is being destroyed. You could think as well of the uh, forests in um, Brazil or in Argentina that are being destroyed for beef cattle. But um, the desire to eat beef is, you know, something that everybody has. And, and um, you know, as populations get richer, they transition to a more protein-rich diet as well. So maybe um, a little bit of self-awareness is a good thing, you know, and if people think, right, you know, I'm going to have a vegetarian meal once every week, maybe that's a start. Uh, so I think sustainability has to be seen in a global context and as a holistic way of looking at things. It's not just something that you can do in one area without trying to do in others. But people have to understand why you're doing it. I think that people also need to have choices. Um, I don't believe that you could say force somebody to, to go down a route that they don't necessarily want to go down, unless, of course, it comes to the point where nature is actually forcing them down that route. But, um, yeah, I think it's a, a difficult one. I think in terms of biofuels, one of the options that people have considered is biofuels from algae because they do not require arable land. They could be grown in other platforms, potentially in the sea. It's quite difficult, though, because the cost of algal biofuels is so expensive um, that for their development right now, we have to piggyback on other systems such as the production of platform chemicals or refined chemicals, rare chemicals. Um, the other option that people are thinking about for algal biofuels is what they call the integrated biorefinery, where you have a circular economy. The algal biomass generates the fuel and the residue, if you like, is fed back to the algae and it goes round and round in a circle of recycling. So I think that if we are really to transition to a bioeconomy, we must be a lot more aware of recycling, the capacity that things should and could be recycled, and we must make that as easy as possible for people to implement. Yeah, thank you okay. so much. Great, thank you. <laughs> thank you for being with us today, and that was great. Thanks very much. Good. Today I'm at Royal William Yard at Mills Bakery Studios with Honor Degare, who's going to show me her work about plastic pollution. Um, so, <laughs> um, 
Okay, so this is um, my first piece. It's called Tideline, and it's a plaster cast of Bother Sands Bay. Um, so I took plaster down to the beach and made up a mould and poured it in, and it physically picked up the beach to then bring into the studio to put emphasis on the plastic pollution problem. And this is only a small area of the beach, and you can see already that there's tons of plastic pollution in that area. So yeah, and when was you're this, on... Was this just a random part of the beach that you yeah, poured plaster yeah. on? And um, I put it at eye level so that kind of puts emphasis on the problem. Because when you're at the beach, you tend to, you're kind of distracted by the beauty of the landscape and you're sometimes unaware of what's like, by your feet. Mm. So putting it at eye level kind of like draws attention to this problem. <laughs> it's great that you've got like pieces of like feather and things incorporated into this because yeah. it makes you rem like realise how it's actually affecting the ecosystem yeah, as well. Yeah, exactly. Did you? And I'm really pleased that it's actually picked up everything off the beach. I thought it was just going to be kind of a negative space of the tide line but the sand's been picked up and all the plastic and yeah it's literally bringing the outdoors indoors yeah was that yeah it was really really heavy as well because <laughs> <laughs> it's i think it's 30 kilograms so oh, wow. um bring it off of sands bay it was quite hard but i had my brother and his girlfriend to help <laughs> so but yeah it's um i had to actually get a a big bracket and like drill diagonally and then put it on. Were you okay. expecting this much plastic to be part of it or? No, not really, yeah. It's, it, well, I was going to do a, a cast of um, Guernsey as well to have a contrast between the two, but because of the storms it was quite hard and I didn't want to like, affect it with the rain. You know, I didn't know if it was going to set properly. But um, I find Guernsey, it's actually, there's not as much plastic pollution over there, so the contrast between the two would have been quite good. Do you think that's because people have like more appreciation for like the environment or is it just that it has like a lower population? Yeah, or? it could be the lower population, but I think now because with you know like David Attenborough's Blue Planet, I think more people are definitely trying to help the environment protect you know the world that we live in now. But I don't know if it's I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um yes. Yeah, so Do you have any piece. Oh yeah. So we're looking okay. at another piece over here. Yeah, um, my second piece is, this is a microplastic tide line. So when I went down to Whitsands Bay, I was shocked at the amount of microplastic scattered along the coast. And so I wanted to rep like, represent that through um, a material. So I chose resin because that's kind of like the best... <laughs> if anyone's unfamiliar with what resin looks like, it's basically it just basically looks like an ice block, but like a yeah, lot it can, shinier. It does look like glass, actually, <laughs> but yeah, because I wanted to kind of do the same sort of thing as the plaster one. But obviously, if I did that, if I use that material, then the um, microplastics would have sunk into it, and you, they wouldn't be visible. But um, yeah, I chose microplastics because this is like a growing problem, and apparently, if you if you eat um, seafood, then you swallow about 11,000 pieces of microplastic every mm. year, which is shocking. So I wanted to yeah, create a piece um, presenting this problem to educate the audience. But these are actually, I think these are kind of, these are different ones from the ones that are actually in like face washes. I think the, this is literally plastics that have just been broken down over the years. Um, but yeah, mm. they come in loads of different colours and shapes and sizes and I thought they looked quite pretty. So yeah, scattered them along and... Mm. 
but um, my piece was originally um, a long 70 centimetre um, rectangle, but it, unfortunately <laughs> when I was presenting it, it fell off the wall, and yeah, I was quite gutted about that, but I think it's kind of worked in a way, because it kind of looks like sea glass, and it kind of, it represents the destruction of the coastline oh, right, so that we're you didn't purposefully break no, these. No, no. <laughs> right, I thought that you did. Yeah, no, it was originally a big piece like that. But, um, yeah, it kind of, I don't know, kind of represents the destruction. It does remind of you a bit of, like, when you're by the beach and you see, like, glass bottles, like, broken yeah, on yeah. the shore. But it, also yeah. you can see the actual microplastics through where the it's side. actually fragmented and broken. But, yeah, I want to try and make more or maybe actually create jewellery that's actually got my classics in because you can buy um, you and get moulds rings and you could actually put these in it or make pendants so yeah <laughs> cool what which piece did it that stand, um, seems to stand out I think the tide line piece stood out most and also the weave one should I explain this one yeah go yeah. for it <laughs> yeah so this is um I've made a loom weave of all the plastic pollution I've found so far. Um, this is from Whitsands Bay, Guernsey, um, Bobber Sands Bay as well. So um, did you take that with you when you came here, like on the plane, like in your suitcase or something? Yeah, when you yeah, came but, from Guernsey? yeah. Well, my brother's here as well, so we've got the car, so oh, okay. we come over on the boat, which is quite good. <laughs> and yeah, I brought a few materials over. But um, yeah, this is. It started off with a massive pile, and I've kind of reduced it down. So compacting it, and it's, I don't know, it kind of looks like, represents a plastic landscape with the layers building up. Yeah. And yeah, I want to make this um, a participatory piece um, so that people can actually collect their own stuff and, well, they can either weave it or I can weave it, and it's kind of spreading the word about yeah. helping the environment. And um, yeah, I'd like to organise my own beach clean as well. Um, yeah, so that is every piece of rope that's incorporated into this um, like something that you actually found on the beach. Yeah, yeah. Literally. This is this like, is all stuff that I found. But um, I yeah, because this is all compacted from me. But then obviously I want to fill it to the top. So if people actually contributed and helped, how long have you been working on this? Um, well, since really October I started it. So yeah, it's very time consuming, but it's, um, I find it very therapeutic as well. It's quite nice to just sit here and just weave the plastic pollution, but the colours as well are quite pretty. Yeah. So it's turning something that's like ugly on the beach to something more pretty. And also when it's pretty, it attracts people mm, to look yeah. at it and then that will then encourage them to help protect the environment and yeah. Um, yeah, and also, um, I want to put tags next to the piece, um, so it says where you've actually got found the plastic and who found it. So when wow. I actually make it participatory, and also it's kind of it's a documentation of my time at the beach and what I found. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. So what inspired to make you to make like art that encapsulated like plastic pollution and pollution um, by the sea? I think because I live in Guernsey. Um, on an island surrounded by the coast, so I'm kind of aware of our surroundings and the environment. And I've I've always loved going to the beach from a young age, and I think that's my favourite place. And, and now it, it angers me how such a beautiful place can be destroyed by plastic pollution. So yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> That's cool. Sorry. Sweet. Like, let's say someone views these pieces like what do you want them to take away from it what do you want them to change in their lives or like policy makers to do to change yeah I think yeah I want these pieces to educate the audience about the plastic pollution problem and also when they're actually on the beach to pick up plastic and join beach cleans and also yeah obviously recycle mm. um, yeah. and I think that actually making art to do with the environment has can have more impact than just looking at facts and figures um, from marine biologists, so... So that wraps it up for this week's show. A big thank you to our special guests this week, Dr Love and Honor Nagare. If you're interested in seeing some of Honor's work, you can follow her on Instagram Yes.